Arsenal for Democracy is available twice a week. There's a free episode at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple or Stitcher each weekend and a midweek bonus episode at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy, available for $5 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. California. New York Island. The Redwood Forest. The Gulf Stream waters. This land is made for you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 381. This bonus episode is recorded on Tuesday, June 8th, 2021. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Idaho is Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Bill. This week's episode is a bit of a complicated one to explain, but seems like a good one to understand, especially if you're on the left as opposed to neoliberal, and you're also interested in affordable housing and public provision of basic needs. We're talking about the low-income housing tax credits of 1986, also known as LIHTC, often spoken aloud as LIHTC or LIHTC. And these tax credits from 1986 are still in effect today and serve as just about the only source of federal public funding, however indirectly, for the construction of new low-income housing stock. This program is something I didn't even learn about until becoming a city councilor, and then I discovered that people who are years or decades more experienced than me in office working on these issues sometimes also don't really understand how it works unless they have literally worked directly for an entity building or funding these housing projects. And so I've tried to explain it to as many people as I can. As usual, our sources will be up at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy for this episode, although in this case we're mostly having to rely on more market-oriented neoliberal perspective sources for explanations and statistics, while we then provide our own leftist critique of the views in the sources. Now, our key source for this week, for the most purely informational material, is a January 26, 2021 Congressional Research Service report prepared by Mark P. Keatley. So, What is the low-income housing tax credit system? Well, it's going to remind many listeners a bit of how cap-and-trade systems are supposed to work, except it's somehow even more incompetent and nonsensical. Instead of giving grants to build low-income housing, the federal government gives out tax credits to a developer, including for-profit developers, for having built some affordable housing. For simplification today, We won't get into all the technical requirements for how much and what levels of affordable housing are required to qualify, but you could imagine a project of, say, 50 units, all or nearly all with rents capped for various lower income tiers as a sort of typical mid-sized project. Uh, We're not talking about the projects that are majority market rate uh, and cross-subsidizing the low-income units. So these these projects, again, are either almost all or entirely low-income housing projects. So once that federal tax credit is claimed by the developer after construction, the credit is then sold on for less than face value to a different corporation that wants to reduce its taxes. The developer assigned the tax credit sells it for as low as 80 cents on the dollar, depending on market conditions, converting the tax credit into cash to pay back the investors who funded the initial construction. The often unrelated company buying the credit on the market 
then reports to the IRS the full dollar value as a tax credit against what they otherwise would owe. Those credits add up to about $10 billion per year in federal tax expenditure through lost revenue collection. And as a reminder, unlike a tax deduction, which reduces your taxable income and thus slightly reduces your owed taxes, a tax credit reduces your actual owed taxes on a dollar-for-dollar basis at the end of the process, although, of course, the tax filer has paid some of that dollar to buy the credit on the market. Again, this tradable credit system that we're describing today, which only builds around 50,000 new units of housing per year nationwide, and a similar amount of units are rehabbed annually, often by nonprofits for a smaller credit, this entire system exists instead of the federal government just paying to develop affordable housing at a full dollar-for-dollar value. So let's get into a discussion of this, Rachel. Um, Obviously, I think you and I view this as an insane Rube Goldberg system uh, and sort of an archetypical example of uh, neoliberalism at its worst. Um, But again, sort of to reiterate here, because it's not even just a matter of the federal government outsourcing the construction of low-income housing. It's also that they're not really providing any support up front to pool the money together to build it. So in order to do that, they have to then add a second layer of marketization around that where they have to get capital either from investors who are going to expect profits in return or banks who are going to loan money in exchange for interest in return uh, in order to build those projects. And then they get these resellable tax credits uh, as a source to basically pay off those uh, investors and banks after they've done the construction over a period of time. Um, So Rachel, I was curious to get your sort of initial thoughts, as I know this was also a topic that was totally unfamiliar to you until we started working on it. Yeah, I kind of knew that um, low-income housing was in dire straits and has been for several decades, but I don't think I realized just how complicated the system was um, and I didn't realize that it, it's like just giving money to private markets, like public money to private markets. And I mean, and just, not even just efficiently. In, no. Yeah. In, in like the weirdest, most convoluted way possible. And then we're losing $10 billion per year in lost revenue, revenue collection. So it's, it, it doesn't seem to benefit anybody just because like the number of new housing units is so low and because we're losing out on this revenue collection on the other end, it just doesn't really seem to be benefiting anybody except for these private real estate investors. And so it's it's kind of mind boggling that instead of actually actively investing in low income housing in a public manner, we've chosen to to make it as complicated and as like marketized as possible. Right. And again, to sort of really zero in on this inefficiency point here, uh, you know, not only are we not building that many units with this system, but again, it's not just like the federal government handing over money to a company to build a project because they don't get the money until after the project is done. And then it's spread out over a 10 year period and has to basically go to pay back the investors at a profit or pay back the bank with interest. Uh, So Again, you know, let's say that the market in a particular year 
is such that these resale the the resale value of these tax credits is is trading at 90 cents on the dollar right so that means that if the federal government gives out 10 billion dollars worth of tax credits only 9 billion of that and this is again just a macro simplification here only 9 billion of that is actually going toward the construction of housing and paying back the investors, right? So not even just the construction of the housing itself, but also including the profit streams and bank interest going back to the people that provided the capital up front to build this, this housing. There's a there's a whole other billion dollars out of the 10 billion that is going to often, and we'll circle back to this, often totally unrelated companies to just not have to pay their taxes. If you were wondering how it was not counting things like offshore tax evasion and avoidance uh, that you know, how how do these mega corporations end up paying like zero dollars in taxes a year? Obviously, it's a complicated system with a lot of different schemes like this. But one example is the low income housing tax credit, right? If you have all these different companies, basically managing to uh, obliterate, uh, you know, millions and millions of dollars in taxes through this, purchasing these credits to pay off these uh, affordable housing developers, Anyway, you can see where I'm going with this, basically, but it's just like it, it just piles up into this bizarre system uh, that is just uh, adding wheels on wheels on wheels. Um, everyone in classic neoliberal fashion gets their beak wet on profits that exist solely due to government expenditure streams. And the government pretends that it's saving money because it's not having to gather those upfront resources to fund an entire project or service. And it's instead letting the quote-unquote invisible hand of the market do that instead. Uh, Any problems that arise with the housing itself are then kept at arm's length from the government. Gradually, the state capacity to provide basic needs just sort of withers away. And the state only knows how to give out money to private companies over time to do things it could do on its own probably for less money total, and certainly with more of the dollars actually going to the intended purpose instead of being partially diverted into investor profits and partially diverted into tax liability reduction for other companies. Um, Most importantly, I want to emphasize the LIHTAC system is totally inefficient and insufficient even under its own limited logic. In many, if not all, markets in the U.S. with a housing crisis for low-income people, the converted market value of the LIHTAC for a project does not actually cover the cost of a project, even with when coupled with money that can be raised from bank loans and from for-profit investors who make their returns either from the actual rents from the low-income renters or from the yearly sale of these annual tax credits over a 10-year period. This means because the converted value of the LIHTAC does not cover the the project costs, uh, and also doesn't cover the gap between the private funding sources and the total cost, the developers also have to then go find additional funding sources. They have to basically cobble together a, uh, a package of funding sources, uh, often with various meager sources of grant funding from state and municipal governments, which again is separate from the LIHTAC tax credits, uh, and that uh, makes the project buildable uh, by putting together these packages, which according to researchers at Berkeley, uh, UC Berkeley, uh, they found uh, that on average, 3.5 sources of funding are used per project, and sometimes as many as 11 sources of funding, uh, excluding LIHTAC, are used. So you end up with stacks that are like, okay, we have uh, the LIHTAC funding from the federal government. We have the state of California's funding. We have this county's funding. We have this city's funding. Uh, those are uh, grants or 
additional types of credits. Uh, then we've gotten uh, such and such bank to give us a loan. And then we've additionally got some equity investors who are going to get their money back uh, when we get our money back uh, through things like the LIHTC and so forth, or the rents coming in very slowly uh, and in small uh, quantities. Um, and, you, and you put together, you add up all these different things, or like five different investors or whatever, and all of a sudden you've gotten yourself to 11 sources of funding. Uh, and that just, I think, shows that what a Rube Goldberg machine this entire thing is. Um, and uh, basically, in a sense, what the tax credits really do, given how small they are relative to the total cost of projects in expensive housing markets, is the, the lie tax, tax credits, uh, They once cashed in, they basically just act to reduce the amount of necessary debt service to a bank on a project. Um, and, and But what I mean by that is, like, if I can get this tax credit from the federal government, I have to, I don't have to ask for as much money from the bank uh, as a loan. Uh, and so it's really just like a small piece of the picture, uh, but it's not helping that much. It's, it's certainly not covering the cost of an entire project. Rachel, can you uh, explain uh, with a hypothetical example how, what the, the funding sort of situation would look like on a project like this in terms of how the uh, LIHTC money adds up? Yeah, uh, this uh, comes from the Congressional Research Service report that we mentioned earlier. Um, and I'm going to kind of try to go slow because I had to read over it a few times to really get it. Um, so a simplified example may help in understanding how the LIHTC program is intended to support affordable housing development. Consider a new apartment complex with a qualified basis of $1 million. And a qualified basis means that of the entire project, one million of it is eligible for this credit. And again, this is just a hypothetical example with easy numbers. So since the project involves new construction, it will qualify for the 9% tax credit. And assuming for the purposes of this example that the credit rate is exactly 9%, we'll generate a stream of tax credits equal to $90,000, which is 9% times $1 million, per year for 10 years, or $900,000 in total. Under the appropriate interest rate, the present value of the 900,000 stream of tax credits should be equal to $700,000, resulting in a 70% subsidy. So this kind of confused me, but I, from what I understand, the interest rate gets adjusted based on how the value of the dollar changes over 10 years. So they're aiming for an interest rate that makes that $900,000 in, in year zero money equals $700,000 in year 10 money. And this results in a 70% subsidy. Because the subsidy reduces the debt needed to construct the property, the rent levels required to make the property financially viable are lower than they otherwise would be. Thus, the subsidy is intended to incentivize the development of housing at lower rent levels, and thus affordable to lower income families, that otherwise may not be financially feasible or attractive relative to alternative investments. So hopefully that, that somewhat made sense. Might need to like read it a few times or listen to it a few times to really wrap your head around just because it is so complicated. So Rachel, one of the big things that tripped me up in all of this, uh, which I think a lot of my colleagues also have struggled with uh, as I've been talking to them about it, is the idea of how a tax credit 
can become an income stream over time. Now, you've just given us this example and talked about how it's sort of geared toward this like 10-year horizon. Um, but and, and I think, you know, if, if you've listened to what we've said so far, it might be clear at this point. Um, but again, like I think most people think of like, oh, a tax credit, like that's just kind of helping you out a little bit to defray the cost. That's not you know, money in your pocket. It's just sort of like discounting it on the end. But in fact, as we're saying, because of this trading system here, they are in fact able to convert this into a into an actual lump sum of cash, right? It's less than the value of the, the credit, uh, but it, it, it's an actual lump sum of cash that they can use uh, however you would normally use cash. Um, and that brings us to some other additional miscellaneous points that I know you wanted to go over. Again, kind of clarifying what the heck these LIHTC things are um, and how they actually are used in these projects. I mean, we've given the example of like mechanically how they're used, but sort of like broadly how they're used. Yeah. So uh, generally speaking, there's two types of credits. Uh, there's 9% credits, which are to be used for new construction. And then there's 4% credits, which are used for rehabbing existing housing units and making sure they don't um, break down or decay to the point where they are removed from the housing stock. Um, LIHTC money is coming from the federal government, but is administered to developers by the state governments. And the, this money is assigned to them proportionally to the state's population. Uh, credits are reserved by the state administrators ahead of a project and then paid out over a 10-year period once claimed following completion of construction, which is a big point here that we wanted to emphasize. The construction has to be completed. If a state doesn't use its proportional allocation of credit money within a period of two years, it returns to a federal pool to reallocate it to states with more projects in the pipeline. Um, another weird wrinkle is that although the buyers of the traded tax credits are usually essentially unrelated to the development project, they do get legally partnered to it as a passive investor as part of the credit sale after the project has been completed, um, which sounds very complicated. So essentially people unrelated to the real estate development entirely have bought into it, which doesn't really make sense to me. Um, in 1989, the LIHTC system was slightly amended to require a minimum 30-year commitment to keep the rents restricted to low-income renters so that they can't just be evicted in favor of market rate tenants after a decade when the credits expire. So it took them three years to kind of figure out that they needed to require this this minimum commitment. So I don't know. That that's, seems like a lack of foresight to me. Um also, sometimes the company cashing in on the discounted tax credits is a major bank like Bank of America that might also actually be financing the construction. So it seems like they can kind of double dip and, and get more bang for their buck. And this also makes them look better from a Community Reinvestment Act standpoint. Um, so the Community Reinvestment Act uh, requires that banks have... Uh, continuing an affirmative obligation to help meet the credit needs of their communities where they're located. And this includes low and moderate income neighborhoods where they are chartered, um, consistent with the safe and sound operations of the institutions. Um, so this requires that banks are investing in their communities and is probably just making sure that banks don't um, act in ways that, that, uh, contribute to redlining in a community where they just aren't investing at all and um, 
and just kind of letting the community decay over time just because there's no investment from these banks. And so the Federal Reserve actually rates, rates banks on a scale from non-compliance to outstanding. And you are entitled to see a bank's uh, CRA uh, rating, and it has to be publicly available, which I am actually kind of curious about now to see how some of these big banks, such as Bank of America, actually rate. It's a good point, though, to emphasize that um, although a lot of the examples we've been talking about are an unrelated company that doesn't really have to do, they might not even be in real estate at all uh, or in any capacity, even as a, a lender, they just want to get their tax liability reduced so they purchase the credits. In some cases, it is an actual participant in the project like Bank of America. And I assume what they're doing is basically, again, reducing that debt service load in exchange for getting their tax liability reduced. Uh, we also wanted to touch on a 2009 paper from the Joint Center of Housing for Housing Studies at Harvard University about how the recession affected the LIHTC tax credit market. Um, so during the last recession, major institutional investors temporarily stopped buying these LIHTC credits because they were losing money overall and thus did not owe taxes on profits. So there was nothing to deduct, basically, or to get credits on because they were they were losing so much. Um, the federal government did enact some emergency, quote unquote, gap financing money as opposed to credits, but only in the form of gap payments to recently approved and built affordable housing projects that now had no one interested in buying their tax credits for a couple years, which meant they wouldn't be able to pay back their upfront investors. Um, this particularly affected the 4% tax credit market. Um, so uh, one of the fixes uh, that was enacted was a tax credit exchange um, where people could buy and sell their 9% uh, credits. However, 4% credits were ineligible for the tax credit exchange program. And this uh, affected, uh, as we said before, housing preservation projects on currently existing housing rather than new construction. Um, so the lack of investors willing to take on this risk put already existing low-income housing stock in jeopardy and especially hit nonprofits who are more likely to take on preservation projects, and they acquire site control before tax credits are even sold, which expose them to more risk if they can't find those investors. Um, so this paper uh, um, named some proposals that would probably that would help um, rectify this disruption of the LIHTC program. And one proposal was to shorten the period over which the credits are paid out to developers so that they can repay investors faster, making it more attractive to provide the upfront cash to build a new project. And one uh, particularly uh, complicated Rube Goldberg proposal from this paper during the recession's immediate aftermath would have been to have the U.S. Treasury Department itself step in to purchase low-income housing tax credits from developers similar to its purchases of distressed assets in the wider housing market. So not only is the government providing these tax credits to the private market, then it would then buy them back. So just kind of adding another layer of complexity and another layer of marketization um, and, and private spending that just makes things even more complicated without really helping the, the big picture cause of the situation. 
Yeah, this paper is a good example of something that I've found while familiarizing myself in my official capacity and doing the research for this episode, which is that a lot of the people who work in this space, and I'm even talking about the researchers and the nonprofit people and the uh, program administrators and so forth, uh, not so much talking about the actual uh, private investors and private developers, some of whom I know, right? But just talking about the other people who work in this space, they are so completely in the trench like that they can't see it's it's a real like you've missed the forest for the trees situation there's a lot of like well what if we made this tweak and added this thing or tried to simplify this part of the process there's almost no discussion about getting rid of this system and replacing it completely with direct funding of projects even direct funding to the private market <laughs> to do these projects, right? Because like outsourcing it to a private builder and operator uh, for a low-income housing project would at least be about 5 billion steps less complicated uh, of a outsourced marketization than this system is. Um, and obviously, I think it goes without saying that our personal perspective is more in favor of direct uh, public financing, construction, and ownership uh, of public housing. Um, but this paper is a great example of the people who just cannot see over the horizon to like a different way of doing this. So it's all just about making these bizarre little tweaks to this system. So I did want to go back at this point to talk about the Tax Reform Act of 1986, which is the origins of LIHTC, the Low Income Housing Tax Credit, um, because I wanted to kind of talk about that context and again, why I think this is such a pinnacle of neoliberalism from the era in which that was really starting to erupt onto the scene with full force and like completely take control of the political system as the dominant ideology. Obviously, it had been percolating through the 70s and so forth. But this is the point where you start seeing it really get baked in in ways that are literally still lasting almost unchanged to present. I mean, you know, they do tweak some of the requirements here and there or like say, oh, you have to adjust this level of affordability and that kind of thing. But apart from that, it is fundamentally the same system as passed in 1986 with that change that we mentioned earlier in 1989, which was, you know, just a few years into it to fix an oversight that they had made. Um, but the Tax Reform Act of 1986 overall uh, was a bipartisan round of major Reagan tax cuts from his second term. One of the big changes in this package was a shift in tax policy toward favoring homeowners and away from favoring rental property landlords, which in turn discouraged rental housing stock from remaining as rental property as opposed to owner-occupied. I mean, it didn't obviously discourage everyone because there's still money to be made as a rental landlord, obviously, um, but it, you know, in terms of overall trends, that was sort of the discouraging effect that it had, and at least definitely definitively uh, shifting toward promoting homeownership um, quite affirmatively. One of the other features of this tax reform changed certain rules about corporate real estate losses in a way that was probably good overall, uh, because real estate is often used to disguise profits as losses, um, but which also ended up weirdly pushing a lot of publicly traded corporations with no particular interest in housing to be bigger buyers of the low-income housing tax credits than actual real estate companies are. So even with the example we gave earlier where it's a related company, that's Bank of America, and they're doing it for, you know, as part of their lending process related to the Community Reinvestment Act, Um Again, there's a lot of these uh, sources that we looked through where it just kept talking about widely held companies, which is the opposite of closely held, basically like a publicly traded uh, you know, company uh, on the stock market, which again, in many cases has 
is neither a bank nor a real estate entity, has nothing to do with developing houses, and they buy these tax credits uh, on these exchanges and markets just so that they can reduce their tax liabilities. And that, again, dates to another part of the Tax Reform Act of 1986, as I just said. So uh, I was curious, what did LIHTC replace in housing policy more broadly? Because I didn't really know the answer to that. I mean, Rachel and I definitely know kind of like the bigger picture broad strokes in very, you know, impressionistic terms, but not any of the specific details. And as Rachel said at the beginning, it's so much worse than you would think, even if you already thought it was bad. Um, there was a pretty long gap from 1973 until 1986, where the federal government really wasn't spending any money, uh, either in direct subsidies or these sort of half-assed tradable tax expenditures. Uh, um, and that was due to Nixon's public housing construction moratorium. Uh, that moratorium ended the wave of uh, first New Dealer and then big society public housing construction from the 1930s through the early 1970s. Uh, and the 1973 moratorium on the 1937 and 1968 new housing programs was always intended to be temporary and new housing funding programs were supposed to be established by mid-1974. But that happened to time out to the absolute height of the Watergate scandal and the chaotic political situation essentially lost it in the shuffle. Um, no one seemed overly motivated to revive federal housing spending after things had calmed down, and the policy scene on this issue just sort of stagnated. Uh, in some classic famous last words that I found in a New York Times article uh, from April of 1973, an assistant director to the HUD office in Washington said, quote, If the administration comes through with an alternate housing proposal in a timely manner, then there should be no real setback. And of course, they did not. So what has all of this accomplished? Well, low-income housing tax credits uh, passed in 1986 have been applied to a grand total of, and again, please bear in mind the total population of the United States and the total population of people that need low-income housing, these have been applied to a total of 3.23 million units of low-income housing built, rehabilitated, or acquired from out-of-the-market-rate supply, built, rehabilitated, or acquired from out-of-the-market-rate supply between 1987 and and 2018. So that's it. This whole Tyconic system of wheels on wheels on wheels, rotating around, doing Rube Goldberg stuff, has built a grand total of 3 million units and rehabilitations included in that as well, and acquisitions. So not even new. It's not even 3.23 million units of housing. New. It's total for this whole program. So one of the other things is, as I said, this is a bipartisan tax reform, the overall Tax Reform Act of 1986, right? Real moron Democrat hours of the late 1980s, um, just signing their own death warrants and political oblivion. And the LIHTC itself within that seems like another great example. And it's a good example of how neoliberalism is really a cross-party dominant ideology, right? Markets in general are basically the dominant ideology of both parties and have been for quite a long time. But neoliberalism specifically, and we're not talking about party bases here, we're talking about like the people in Congress, the people that are in the White House, their staff, and so forth. The dominant ideology in both parties is this neoliberal uh, economic approach. Again, you marketize everything, you marketize it several different layers, everyone gets their beaks wet, and so forth in the private sector. It was passed as a bipartisan measure in 1986. Uh, one of the sources that we read, uh, and that's in the notes, mentions that uh, the situation last year uh, with the pandemic economic crisis, 
um, there was not that much concern uh, or worry, especially after the numbers started coming in about how the lie tax situation was going to go because there was so much bipartisan support uh, to keep up and protect this program. Uh, but also in the future, we think that this bipartisan sort of neoliberal approach to housing is likely to continue, not because there's deep and strong support, but quite the opposite, which is that it's kind of a third rail issue in many ways, despite the urgency of the housing crisis and has been for now more than 50 years, right? This is not something that a lot of politicians want to actually touch and start tinkering with, and they don't want to think big about having public housing construction and ownership programs implemented. And more importantly, they don't understand how the system works right now. And that is one of the things that neoliberalism is especially good at as a, you could argue, side effect or intended function, depending on what you're looking at and your perspective. But at minimum, a side effect is that these systems are so complicated and so bizarre and so nonsensical that the actual policymakers in many cases don't understand what it is, even if they wanted to change it, uh, or they don't understand that there is a different way of doing it, or they've just never thought about it. I would venture that the vast majority of members of Congress who vote on, you know, extending LIHTC credits in every tax code thing or whatever, if that's how it works, or, you know, if it ever, anyone ever says, oh, we need to make a fix here, right? Whenever the, it comes up for them to vote on it, I would imagine the vast majority of them have no idea what it is or how it works, right? As I said, many people, you talk about, you say tax credits, and they think about the reduction in liability. They don't think about it in its tradable instrument form with exchange value, which is a whole other thing, which again is a great example of neoliberalism, where you've taken a thing that does one thing, and now you've made it do multiple different things and financialized it somehow uh, through the magic of government and weird regulations and tax policy. And I, I would guess that if more policymakers understood it, there would be some greater number who would want to change this system and junk it in favor of something much more substantial and meaty. Um, and, and probably it would have to be mostly public. Um, but some of them would look at this and go, this is good. I like this system. This is the market working. We're getting out of the way and helping the market to do this thing. Again, building 50,000 new units a year, rehabbing 50,000 older units a year. That's it. Somehow that's sufficient to the scale of the problem. Uh, very bizarre perspective. So Rachel, um, before we close out, I wanted to get your thoughts on that particular aspect and, and the very sort of bipartisan nature uh, of the, the LIHTC program. Yeah, like you said, I think neoliberalism really relishes making things as complex and complicated as possible uh, because then you can't scrutinize it too much. You're like, oh, the free markets of work, things are going as planned. You don't really have to look into it that much. And uh, something that flashed into my mind is uh, there's nothing scarier to a modern day politician than asking to invest in public projects. Like I, I saw the Drake meme and like just Drake saying no to public investment in public housing with, and that's publicly owned and then saying yes to tax credits and just this overly complicated system. I, it's kind of funny because if you, if I'm guessing if you pulled people on public housing, um, I think there was in one of the articles about public housing history, it's incredibly popular. 
the people who live in them, the people who are on waiting lists to live in public housing, it's incredibly popular. And even though there is that kind of stereotype of run down and dirty, that, that only applies to a very, very small amount of public housing. But it's just so unattractive to politicians to invest in those public projects or to even suggest it. It, it seems to be an anthema to um, the modern day neoliberal politician. I don't know. It's just, it's so hard to conceive of this system. Like I think in my worst assessment of what I thought the, the system was, I kind of assumed it was just like block grants to private real estate developers, but it's actually 10 times more compli complicated and 10 times worse um, than I even imagined in my cynical view of, of, uh, housing investment um so it's it's just uh it's just crazy to think about in that that tiny number of 50,000 units um of new housing each year like i think we need that just in my city alone in boise alone we need 50,000 units of housing for low income people so it's just incredibly inefficient incredibly ineffective and incredibly complicated yeah, I, there's not really much else to say on it. It's a very perplexing way of doing things um, to, I think, a normal person, right? Anybody that's not totally captured by the neoliberal ideology and propaganda of the markets and all that stuff. And again, as you said, there are even middle ground options here where you could just give out block grants to pay people in the private sector to build and manage affordable housing developments. And that is not even what's happening here. It's so much worse than that. It's so much more complicated than that. It's so much less efficient than that. There's so many layers of marketization and profit streams that just do not need to be there. And it's just one thing after another, one thing stacked on top of the other in, in the case of the uh, funding sources, literally stacking these uh, grants. And it's just a bizarre way of doing things and just like needs to be challenged root and branch, I think. Anyway, anything else, Rachel? No, I, I think we covered it as, as best as we could. <laughs> yeah. And there may be some stuff that we got wrong on the technical aspects here. And I'd certainly be happy to hear corrections on that. Uh, it's very complicated to understand and parse. And then it's also complicated to try to explain it to somebody else after you've done a bunch of readings on it. But again, patreon.com slash arsenal for democracy. It will have the notes up there. Thank you for listening. And uh, Rachel, thank you for being here. Glad to be here.